Can you imagine what it's like to experience the murder of your 23-year-old sister? For Tarung Chawla, this unspeakable trauma is a reality. Tarung is a writer, anti-violence campaigner, mental health and gender equality advocate, storyteller and trainee lawyer using his voice to champion human rights and celebrate the memory of his sister, Nikita. Welcome, Tarung, to Human Cogs. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm going to start seven years ago. Your sister, Nikita, was murdered by her husband. She was 23 Mm. years old. Before Mm. we get to that story, tell us about Nikita and and who she was. I never tire of answering this question, uh, and I've been asked it before. And I think I can give the answer that's all like platitudes and stuff. And some of it would be true, you know, like that she was the kindest person that I've ever had the fortune of, of knowing. But she was also the most annoying person I've ever known because she was my younger sister. And it's the way you are with your siblings and your close family or your intimate relationships that you find them insufferable and annoying, but also charming and absolutely delightful. And I found her to be, she was just the most wonderful person. She was so giving of herself in every respect. She was genuinely the most generous hearted person in some way that was one of the reasons that her abuser was able to exploit her during her life and to take such advantage of her is that she saw such kindness in everyone, you know, even in someone who could commit an act as evil as taking the life of someone else is that she was so pure hearted and genuine and kind. And it's something that I, you know, having met so many other victim survivors who have, you know, and their families who have lost women in their, in their families or in their friendship circles, whose lives have been taken from them by violent and abusive men is that they reflect on the lives of these women in such a way that they were all so unanimously kind you know, and, and Nikki was no different to that. And not in the way that like, you know, we have this kind of influencer movement about being kind, you know, we'll see it on social media, but not in that way, like in the genuinely like kind way, like she would do something for other people without any thought of reciprocation or expecting anything in return. And a lot of us aren't wired that way. A lot of us don't look at the world that way. And yet that was sort of what defined her from a very young age. And she was so creative as well. You know, like I remember early childhood memories, you know, and coming from a a South Asian background. So my parents migrated from India to Australia when I was 18 months. It was with Nikki's birth in 1991 that I think for my parents, it really consolidated this idea that Australia was home, that this was where we were going to live, you know, for the foreseeable future. And this is where they, you know, they, they now had roots here. Watching Nikki grow up in this environment of, of migrant parents who wanted security and, and stability for themselves and their children, seeing Nikki explore creative endeavours and going on to want a career in dance and performing arts, it's unusual, you know, it's unusual to, to do that even if you've got the security behind you, because the odds are always stacked against you. But she had this kind of drive and this urge, you know, from within that didn't always match up to how she presented. You know, she was so quietly confident in her abilities, yet also tremendously shy and overly nice. As a brother, I just remember feeling very proud that she had this kind of generosity of spirit and kindness to the world. And she wasn't jaded by what was happening in the world around her and setbacks and things of that nature. And yet she gave everything when it came to the creative endeavours that fueled her life. 
you know so as a as a brother i just look on fondly and i and i remember so fondly and have these things about her life you know the video clips that she produced and things of that nature that allow us as a family to look back and reflect and and enjoy that so i mean i'm i'm all praise for her but at the same time she was Oh, by God, very annoying. <laughs> all, all, all siblings are very, very annoying. It's a beautiful reflection um, that you make of her, that kindness and creativity and all these in- abundant attributes are coming up. And the idea that your family, you know, moved to Australia for a place of safe harbour and security mm. and the terrible irony that, that that's not what occurred for your sister. When you think to the time when when Nikki's life w- was taken, how did that impact your family in that immediate time at that devastating point i remember the moment that it happened and strangely like we talked about seven years ago but it could have been could have been this morning could have been yesterday it's something that i've replayed over and over and over in my mind Uh, i remember the so the police came to my parents home and knocked on the door and asked my parents do you two blue uniformed police officers you know and they were like do you know nikita chola and my mum was like, is she okay? What happened? And it was six in the morning, you know, you don't expect that ever. And so they were like, I think we should come in and sit down. And that was automatically, I think, the cue for my parents that, okay, this is serious. Something's obviously happened. They told my parents. And then my parents came, you know, drove to my house to tell me. And I don't know how they were allowed to get behind the wheel of a car, really. Like, you know, like 6.45 in the morning, whatever it was, having just been told that their only daughter had been murdered overnight after they'd spoken to her the night before, you know, on the phone and just said goodnight and we'll see you on the weekend. And they came and they told me what had happened. And, you know, I've replayed that moment over and over again and they... Whatever energy they had, they used getting to my place. They just crashed on the couch and could barely put a sentence together. I've never seen mum's eyes so red. I've never seen dad's eyes so red. I've never seen my dad cry before that, really. He's not like the strong stoic type or anything, but he didn't, you know, maybe it's a generational thing. Maybe it's an, you know, an ethnocultural thing. It could be any number of factors. It could be just his psyche that he's not like an, openly expressive person with emotions he certainly feels them and seeing that kind of uh shocked me in that moment you know it was and and then the reality of it dawned and in that specific moment seeing my parents you know who had raised my sister and I and had always been you know involved and invested and encouraging you know in our lives and wanting the best for us look and feel so helpless it sort of made me realize that I had to do something that I had to step up. And I remember my dad giving me the business card from the police and on the back, it had the number of the head of homicide written on there. And so when it was like eight 30 or nine that morning, I called him and I had a conversation with this, you know, senior sergeant or something like a high ranking police officer. And it was so strange because the way he spoke about Nikki was like, you know, the deceased and all that. And it was so, it was so peculiar and unusual because just the day before we'd had text messages where I was like, Hey, you know, are you coming over on the weekend? And she's like, of course I wouldn't miss it. And it was like, well, she's not going to be there now. She's not going to be at anything anymore. 
but it didn't dawn on me in that moment. Like in the moment, it was just this shock and this sense of, is this a joke? Is this a practical joke? Is someone tricking me? All the while I'm going through the motions of speaking to police and all of a sudden getting these phone calls and text messages and emails from the media, you know, because it had started breaking in the morning news that day. And I didn't know, you know, what was in store and I didn't know what had happened or what was happening. I just remember being fueled by adrenaline and shock and just seeing that image of my parents slumped in the, you know, the chase of the gray sofa and their eyes red and barely being able to string together a sentence. I'll never forget one thing that morning, which was my mum noticing that I hadn't done the dishes from the night before and I was still in the kitchen sink. And she was like, oh, you know, son, let me, let me help you. And she got up and did the dishes. And I don't know whether it was an act of self-soothing for her or what, but she, like less than two hours prior, she'd just heard from police that her only daughter and her second child had been murdered. And yet she was looking out for the well-being and, and livelihood of her other child. And it was just this, this act of parental love that I'll never forget. And I don't even know if she remembers it and she was just on autopilot, but it was, it was strange and it'll never not feel strange the moment of, of finding out about Nikki's murder. And, you know, I've been very pri privileged that because of, because of the sort of loss that my family's experienced, other people who've been in similar positions have sort of an implied sense of trust when they speak with me or my family. So they'll share these intimate details without having this kind of, you know, Intimacy can sometimes take years to build up and yet we'll meet and we're sharing these very, very close personal things because we've, we've lived a similar experience. You know, it always enlivens me and, and it's heartening to know that despite all of our differences, you know, when we lose someone, we feel very, very similar things. And I think the, the normality or the routine that you describe around the dishes store and your mum speaks to that, that even amongst our deepest, deepest pain, we still continue to carve out sort of normal ritualistic lives. Mm. And until yeah. you've been thrown into the depths of deep grief and the shock that you're describing at Nikki's death, we perhaps imagine that we'll turn up as different people or... Um, act in, in unusual ways, but normal life sits alongside the absolute despair and agony that you're describing. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of a, a lesson to me that we don't need to have been through an experience to have empathy for another person's, you know, lived experience. Like we've all lost someone. We've all felt grief. We've all felt sorrow. We've all felt despondent or despair. And these emotions can be triggered by different life events, you know, and there's this perception I think that sometimes people have that we need to have suffered something in order to understand it. And I reject the premise of that because if we're going to require people to have suffered in order to understand an emotion, then we're actually kind of almost willing into, into existence terrible life experiences for too many people. You know, and that's the thing for me that like, it really shakes you and it helps you see that what my family went through is so common, you know, and so many people go through it, but we don't need people to go through it to understand and to care. You know, we just need to listen and to learn and to understand. Beautifully said, beautifully said. You also, Tarang, have talked 
about your own experience as a survivor of suicide. And mm. I'm interested when I hear you reflect so beautifully and authentically because she annoyed you like every sibling annoys one another, yeah. that when you describe the immediate aftermath of her murder, you're explaining it through the lens of what it might have been like for your parents, the desperation and the shock that they were experiencing. But we mm. didn't hear so much about for you, mm. for you. I had a lot of anger. Yeah, initially, a lot, like a lot of anger. I shifted from sadness to anger quite quickly and a deep sense of betrayal and also guilt. You know, like uh, we were four years apart and the dynamics of, you know, elder siblings and younger siblings is you often feel quite protective of, of their livelihood and their well-being and you want what's best for them. But I was also very like hands-off brother in the sense that, you know, some brothers can be quite, what I would argue, controlling of like younger female siblings, you know, in particular. They're often like quite involved and they have ideas around like who they should and shouldn't date and all that kind of thing. And I was a bit less hands-on in that respect. I was more like, well, it's her life. She, she you know, she's allowed to choose who she wants to be with, etc. And I sort of sat with the guilt of, well, what if I'd intervened or what if I'd done something? And then I, I think through therapy and through time and with the benefit of hindsight and reflecting and coming to terms with the, you know, the fact that if someone wants to take someone else's life, it's pretty difficult to stop them, you know, and that it's, it's actually not my fault. You know, so initially I felt a lot of that. But I think I, I have a tendency to answer in terms of my parents because I could see them. And this happened, uh, what, everything I'm describing happened after because it took introspection, it took time to, set, to sit with the emotions, to give time time, you know, like to actually allow that process to occur so that I could get to a point where I could think about it, not in a critical way, but in a, in a critiquing way, like I could actually identify what I was feeling. Because at the time, it was just a mix of emotions, mm. you know, but anger was at the forefront, definitely, like anger and, and guilt, you know, combined. And I think that sort of spurred the, the need to do something with it. And that's why advocacy started so soon after Nikki's death for me, that, you know, within six weeks of Nikki's death, I'd already spoken publicly about you know, her murder. And I had the sort of the benefit and the privilege of knowing or understanding just enough about defamation law and things like that, having done, you know, law at university and not then being admitted as a lawyer, but still knowing enough that I could speak about it. And a lot of people don't, like they wouldn't know the first thing to do. And arguably I didn't know how it all works. I didn't know how the media works or anything. I just knew that as the brother of a woman whose voice was permanently taken from her, and as someone who had the sort of ability to be able to speak, I had to do something. I had to say something. And initially it was fueled by anger and betrayal and, and guilt and contempt. And over time that shifted, you know, and I think it softened to be more about hope and what, what the potential is for a, a life that is free from violence for far more people than it, than it currently is. Because, I mean, even as we're having this conversation now, um, Sabina and Mads, that there's 11 women that have been killed so far this year, you know, in just about as many weeks. This hasn't gone away. You know, we, we talk about Rosie Badley or Grace Tame or Brittany Higgins and countless others, but it hasn't gone away. You know, it's just something we're talking about now. 
you know, in recent years. But this is a this is an age-old problem and it's going to take a, a hell of a lot of people's involvement to be able to solve, I think. Yeah, and, and your, your work and activism and advocacy is incredible um, and thank you for everything you're doing to elevate this issue so that it, it's not hidden or insidious and sits underneath what's happening day-to-day in society. You're, you're right, the stats are still not moving in the direction mm-hmm. they should uh, they should be. Um, part of your advocacy, um, Tarang, is you're hosting a new podcast um, called There's No Place Like Home uh, where you really pull back the curtain on domestic abuse and family violence and in victim survivors' own words, each episode tells the the powerful and, and complex story of 10 extraordinary humans who who share their thoughts and feelings about their own experience. Um, a huge undertaking and congratulations seems the wrong word, but it's incredible um, and deep and these stories are really important for everybody to hear. Given everything you've been through and, and then coming into that content uh, production, how did you prepare yourself for the complexity of those encounters and those conversations? Oh, wow, what a great question. I, um, firstly, thank you for the really, really kind words about the advocacy and, and things that I've done. And I have to preface that, like, it rests on the shoulders of many, many, you know, primarily women that have, like, spoken long before me. And then also, like, the many great women and men in my life that support me to do it. You know, like, I couldn't do it without the support of my parents, for example. You know, like, I'll get a lot of credit when, say, something gets published in the media or I go on television and talk about something. But my mom has proofread those things, you know, and sometimes I'm pretty sure she's like goes written entire paragraphs, right? Like she doesn't necessarily get the credit, but it's definitely more than just a, a single effort. And I think for anybody who does anything in a public facing component, it's very rarely just that, that one individual. The person getting the credit is always surrounded by others. So I think I have to recognize that. And then also in working on There's No Place Like Home, I don't know that any amount of preparation would have been enough. You know, like I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know just how much of an impact speaking to victim survivors, you know, so candidly and openly would have on me or the rest of the team. We had the, you know, the benefit of hearing from 10 different victim survivors, countless experts, hundreds of hours of interview content that was then whittled down painstakingly into 10, sort of around 40, 45 minute long episodes. And so that entire process, it was very difficult to know what do we focus on and what doesn't make the final edit. You know, and we did so at every turn with sort of the voices of victim survivors guiding us, as in they were the ones who had full control over what gets published and what doesn't. Because when you're dealing with people like, you know, myself as someone who's lived through examples of trauma, as we all have, we'll sometimes say things that, you know, we might feel comfortable disclosing in a private setting or even in a podcast setting, but without thinking that, well, this could go out to the rest of the world. Someone could listen to this and I want it to, you know, have the impact that I intend for it to have. I think I went in feeling more prepared than I really was, you know, and I I didn't expect some of the things that I experienced. So, for example, I would have, you know, in the space of one day, I would go from wanting to cry in the corner at feeling so sort of enraged and upset about what someone had experienced to then feeling inspired and hopeful, you know. So, like at 8 a.m., I would be wanting to cry in a corner and by 2 p.m., I'd be like, oh, my God. Geraldine is incredible. Look at what she has overcome. Khadija's amazing. Amani is fantastic. You know, or 
other times I felt bewildered and confused. So we spoke to someone named Jex, a trans man who experienced abuse within their relationship. And it opened my eyes and educated and illuminated me. And I went into this podcast with other people, you know, for all intents and purposes, saying that I had expertise in the subject or I knew a lot. And I went in like a student. I went in and came out having learned things. And I think for me, what that taught me, and I hope what it teaches everybody who listens to the podcast, is just how much power there is in lived expertise. Because it's not just lived experience. You learn things by going through stuff. And particularly when it comes to the voices of women and victim survivors, women generally, I think we tend not to listen to as a society. You know, and I say that as a man having the privileges that men have. But, you know, women and particularly women of colour or queer women or women from, you know, groups that are further marginalised, you know, they don't get recognition in the media. They're not heard. Their voices aren't always recognised or celebrated or acknowledged in the way that they should be. Right. And so hearing from from women, you know, particularly some of the women of colour who are survivors of domestic abuse and family violence. I, you know, I went in thinking I'm prepared. I know how this is going to go and, and I feel ready to do this. And I went through the whole kind of gamut of human emotions, but I left with a sense of, you know, still carrying this sense of hope that in the voices of these women and these people are so many of the solutions to some of society's most pressing problems. And I just wish policymakers and those in power would listen more. But even if they don't, I think what this podcast has done for me is affirm that we don't always have to wait for those in power to act, that we have so much power as individuals and as the collective within within our communities when we do listen to those people who've lived experience of something and actually act on and take heed of their words. You know, we don't always have to wait for the politicians. And dare I say that if we do wait for them, we're kind of living in a climate where we might be waiting a very long time. So yeah. It sort of gives me a sense of hope, really. Yeah, and empowerment too. There's some agency um, on your behalf and on all the stories that you're sharing through the victim survivors. I think it sounds so powerful. We cannot wait to listen to each episode. What do you think is the reason behind the unthinkable level of domestic violence in our communities today? I think there's a few reasons. Look, I think, you know, we talk about this phenomena as being gendered and I think we need to acknowledge that. There are those who disagree and there are those who will talk about how, you know, men are victims too and they are, you know, when we talk about institutional abuse, we we see the effect on boys and men. But when we're talking about particularly heterosexual relationships, we see far more often that women's lives are taken from them by men, as in men are the ones doing the killing, they're committing homicide, that women bear the brunt of, you know, that the effects of men's collective mistreatment of women. And I think that for us to make inroads into, into that, we have to have an honest, open conversation around what manhood and masculinity and being a man means in Australia and in the world. We're very quick in Australia to pat ourselves on the back when we make one iota of progress. And I think what we need to do is instead of being so self-congratulatory, be a little bit more self-reflective, particularly in the, in the context of what being a man in Australia means. 
because I think that everywhere we turn, we've got examples of men who are celebrated despite having pretty questionable track records of treatment of women in their personal lives. You know, we've got so many examples of men, you know, some of whom have previously been celebrated. You know, the alleged acts of Andrew O'Keefe, for example, call into question a lot of the things that he's publicly stood for. And there's so many examples. We need to have conversations that actually look at how are we raising boys in relation to women, girls, and people of all genders. And I think we're beginning to have that conversation around men's mental health. And I think that's great. I think it's great that we're having conversations around masculinity and boys and mental health. But until we have those conversations, I think with a lens of, of being more pro-social and being seen to, to unpack the harms that not raising boys and men to be well-rounded beings has on other people, not just themselves, we're not going to get to the core of the issue. You know, I think that it's great. It's fantastic. It's absolutely essential that we raise boys to be in touch with their emotions and to have conversations around mental health and to understand, you know, how to identify, for example, on are you okay day, if they're not okay, how to put their hand up for help and how to have other people support them. But going beyond that, going beyond that to go, well, we're living in a society where women live in concert with men. But when men act out, women primarily bear the brunt of that so-called bad behavior. You know, and there's conversations that are taking place in the media right now as the inquest of um, Hannah Clark's, you know, Hannah Clark's killing and her three children's killing occurs. And we're hearing things about Rowan Baxter that are putting into context what so many people who have a lived experience or a connection to domestic abuse and family violence know. And that is that perpetrators of abuse and violence aren't monsters. They're not men that exist at the margins. They're pretty ordinary and otherwise unremarkable men. They don't present a different way. They don't look like, you know, what the movies portray these men as being. They're not lurking on the street corner, you know, like, like categorical creeps exist in day-to-day life. And I think the more that we have those conversations, the more we'll get to the core of the inequality that exists in society, because the degree of inequality is what shapes this behavior. And we often hear about alcohol and substance abuse or money stresses, particularly during the pandemic, you know, and they didn't help the issue, but they certainly didn't cause it. You know, the link between lower socioeconomic groups and domestic abuse is one that might contribute right? It might make things worse, but it's not the cause of it. Many people live in different segments of society and they don't necessarily behave violently or abusively towards their loved ones. And the same way that people in well-to-do communities can exact power and control over others, it just looks different. You know, a barrister may be less likely to hit his partner, but he could control all the household finances in such a way that his intimate partner has no access to money and is effectively living, you know, below the poverty line, but inside a mansion. I think you're right where you talk about this power and control. So really the domains of psychological, physical, financial or or fatal Mm. control behaviours and and the toxic masculinity or whatever we call it, you know, the stereotypes across the gender spectrum that we hold, um, there's real complexity there around for young men, you know, who who do they look to Mm. as their role models? And and you're right, it crosses demographics and, and sociographics. Where you say, you know, these are not 
people, conventional creeps uh, on corners, that it's ordinary people, unfortunately, who are perpetuating violence. What are some of the signs or red flags that one could look for if, if there's someone that, you know, is listening to this or someone that they might know who might be in a situation that could have some red flags in it? The most important red flags to note is the behaviour that takes place, particularly in the early beginning stages of a relationship. And one of the hallmarks of abusive relationships is they often start in such a way that victim survivors describe as describe as being swept off their feet. You know, they describe as, it, it, there's a term that psychologists would use, as you know, Sabina, called love bombing. And we explore that in one of the episodes where, you know, a, a, a woman, Laura, talks about how her ex-partner and abuser swept her off her feet. You know, gifts every second or third day, you know, over-the-top romantic gestures. And sometimes, you know, over the, the odd over-the-top romantic gesture is just that. It's just a, a real, you know, it's someone that genuinely likes you and it's just a gesture coming from a place of love and it's well-intentioned. And other times it's used as a means to control. It's one of the red flags for people to be mindful of. Is this person rewarding so-called good behaviour and punishing so-called bad behaviour. You know, are they giving things as affection to extract what they want from you? And when you don't meet that, you're not compliant with their wishes and their demands, however unreasonable or reasonable they might seem. Then they're punishing you, you know, with prolonged periods of silence, like using silent treatment and silence as a form of power and control over you. Other things are gaslighting behaviours, making you question your sense of reality, you know, or if you express a certain emotion, diminishing it and downplaying it. So if you say that you feel a certain way and they just tell you that you're wrong or that you, you're crazy or that couldn't possibly be what they said or what they did. And one of the things that makes this tricky and difficult to understand is that even in healthy relationships, there's disagreement. Even in healthy relationships, there's conflict. In fact, relationships where there's no conflict are arguably unhealthy because Everybody has needs and everybody has wants and wishes. And it's about how to express that constructively. And I think one of the things that we've done in the podcast by bringing in experts and psychologists and relationship experts is to discuss how an argument could be just that. It could be a one-off argument where one person on one occasion raises their voice and loses their temper and says something they regret. Or it could be a pattern of ongoing abuse where there's power and control. And I think really the red flag that people need to look for beyond love bombing and gaslighting and those things is trusting that gut instinct. If something tells you that something's too good to be true or that it's, you know, a little, you almost like your spidey senses are tingling, like something's not right here. Something's not right about the way that I'm being treated or this doesn't feel the way it should, then explore that. You know, it could you could just be, you know, it could just be your anxiety brain kicking in. I've been there where it's like, oh, you know, and for some people, if they've been in an abusive relationship in the past and then they meet a new partner, sometimes a new partner treating them well, they mistake as love bombing because they think, oh, hang on, this is way too good to be true. This, you know, no one could possibly treat me like this. And I think one of the things that more than looking out for just um, the red flags is putting yourself into the position of speaking to psychologists, to trusted friends, family members about your relationship, about what's going on, so that we, instead of it being something that's dealt with behind closed doors, we speak to people we trust, people that know us, people that understand us, so that we can get a feel for what's going on. Because, 
you know, f- fairly often, particularly when we meet someone new, we do get swept up in those feelings, you know, and that's natural and it's normal. And it's frankly, it's quite exciting, but it's also a, an opportunity for us to know that what's happening is also not only in the other person's best interests, but in our best interests as well. Yeah, you've expressed all of that just so beautifully. I, I can tell how deeply this experience of hosting this podcast has been for you, that hearing the stories of the guests on your pod have touched you and informed you on what was already a very high base, clearly. Mm. One of the things I think you do explore in the podcast is the complexities of what the challenges look like if we leave a relationship. If someone knows that it's time to leave, what are the the best next steps that they could look at? I wish I had a clear answer that was just, you know, Sabina and Mads, you do these three things and you'll be safe. (laughs) But unfortunately, it's never that clear cut. And it's backed up by research. You know, the single most dangerous time for a woman is leaving an abusive relationship or contemplating leaving an abusive relationship or the period immediately after separation. So essentially any part of the breakup, you know, is the, the most dangerous time. That's the context in which my sister Nikki had her life taken from her. That's the context in which countless other women are killed or women's children are killed when men see that they don't have the power and control over their partner that they are used to. You know, they will harm children or they'll harm the woman to prove a point and to exact revenge. But what people can do if they feel safe and comfortable is to inform family and friends is to openly disclose what their intentions are. Because when people know, we've immediately made this non-issue behind closed doors. We've made this an issue that everybody is invested in. You know, and I say that knowing that it's so deeply unfair that, again, the onus falls on victim survivors. But the reality is we don't have a system that intervenes early enough for abusive men. You know, so making sure that family and friends are aware And having a safety plan in place. Now, that could be something that 1-800-RESPECT, the National Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Hotline, can help with. You know, those sort of instances. Having psychological supports around you so that your psychological safety is ensured. You know, and then that decision to leave is something that isn't taken in isolation and alone. Because too often... What's happened for women whose lives are taken from them is that with the benefit of hindsight, whether it's through coronial inquests or family speaking after the fact, is they realise that the woman whose life was taken from her was trapped. And wouldn't it be better if we were able to support people while they were in the relationship to make the decision that allows them to self-determine? You know, that's what's not happening. You know, and, and the reality is that that doesn't require legislators or policymakers. That's really just something that we can do to empower each other. That comes earlier than the moment of separation, really. That comes from checking in with our friends and our family on how their relationships are going. You know, if we spot something that makes us uncomfortable yeah. to speak about it. And I'll give you a prime example of that is that if we're all out and you know, thankfully, we're all out of lockdowns more or less around the country and it's exciting to be able to go out and see friends and socialise. And, you know, we're at dinner sometimes, we'll be at the pub or wherever, and we'll see a partner put down another partner in public, right? And we, we, we've all seen it. Sometimes it's playful and fun and it's all part of bands and it's all good. 
But sometimes it's not. And we can tend, we can tell when it's not, you know, we all, we, we've got that little sense in us that, oh, that was a bit mean or that I didn't like that. And then we just drop it. So few of us actually bring that up later mm-hmm. and we don't need to bring it up in the moment. We don't need to make a scene. We don't need to make it something bigger than it is or make the person who is the, you know, the subject of the joke feel uncomfortable or the person who is making the joke, which could have been well-intentioned, but just didn't land uncomfortable. But what if the next day we, we, you know, we sent off a text or we checked in with a phone call to be like, hey, can I give you a call? I just want to check that everything's okay after yesterday. And then we get a window into what's going on in their relationship and whether it's something that we, we have the smallest regret because we got a little more worried than we should have been about something that was nothing. Or we checked in on someone that we care about and we identified that they might need our friendship now more than ever. And they might need to, you know, a source of trust and knowing that we're, the, we're in their corner. Because what happens so often is that when women particularly disclose and say, hey, I was in an abusive relationship, their first experience is their friend saying, oh, but Tim's not like that. Mm-hmm. Like, I've never seen Tim like that. As though this person isn't a complicated human being that could yeah. behave very differently to her and to the kids when no one's looking but also behave, you know, in a way that's quite normal and socially acceptable publicly. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing about this, that it's, it's so complicated. And, you know, so often the onus lies on the woman when she's leaving the abusive relationship. But during the entire life cycle of any relationship, whether it's healthy or unhealthy and abusive, we can always check in. You know, we can always check in and, and, and build those strong connections. And I think that it's really part of the shift that we need to see where the onus isn't always on victim survivors because they're dealing with a lot already. So if there are men listening or if we don't make this a gendered story, people mm. that are reflecting as they listen, is that me? Have I, have I acted that way with my partner and not realised the damage or potential damage I'm inflicting? What are some steps for a perpetrator to take? Because as you say, we're talking here about what the victim survivor can do, but we need to also focus on those that are causing harm. I think the first thing is that there's there's no shame in admitting that you're not comfortable or happy with the way that you're behaving if you're you're concerned about your behaviour. I think that that's a really profound first step. You know, I think that a lot of times, particularly in like this cancel culture world, there's no space for redemption. There's no space for understanding that often people behave in a way because they've observed it or they've learned it or somehow it's been normalized around them, whether it's in their immediate circle or in wider society. And so what, you know, people, women, men, people of all genders can do, but especially men, you know, I say this as a man, what men can do is speak to someone about it. You know, it could begin with a conversation with a mate, like, hey, I'm not being the kind of family man that I'd want to be. I'm not being the husband that I want to be. I'm not the boyfriend that I want to be. Or, you know, Kirsty's scared of me. Like, I can tell that she's scared of me. I made her feel scared. Like, actually admitting that and sitting with the discomfort of being someone who can claim to love someone and make their partner feel terrified is a profound first step. Mm. But it's, you know, it's not enough. What really changes is when people seek out psychological support and assistance, you know, whether that's going to their doctor, getting a mental health care plan to start talking to a GP 
or, you know, looking online at 1-800-RESPECT or um, the Men's Referral Service on the internet and getting a feel for behavior change programs, anger management therapy, other things that help get to the core of what's driving that behavior. What's the reason behind it? And then sitting with that discomfort and addressing it. Because, you know, far too often what happens is that, um, you know, men in particular don't engage in any of this until they're going through the courts or the, you know, the criminal justice system. And by that stage, it's more often than, lo- than not, it's too late. Like even if the victim survivor is alive, she likely doesn't want to have anything to do with the perpetrator ever again. He's made it very difficult for him to have a, you know, a functional relationship with his kids. And it's really, it really becomes a set of, you know, different camps. You know, there are people in her corner and people in his corner and blind faith on either side without an acknowledgement that, you know, that this situation could have been prevented, you know? And I think that one of the things people can do is really seek out support at an early stage. And there is a message of hope here because on There's No Place Like Home, I know a couple of your guests who are a couple, Carly and Keenan, who, who I've met myself, separate to your project. And so there's a story of hope there. So I wonder if you could just share some reflection on each of these guests have different trajectories, I imagine. They're the only two that I know of your guests. But there's... Yeah. Yeah. So Carly and Keenan are just... <sighs> endlessly fascinating how else would i describe them i think they so they went through a process of restorative justice which is i mean we don't have we probably don't have enough time to go into detail about it but essentially it's a different way of looking at a concept of justice it requires the perpetrator and abuser to almost work together in a sense of what justice would look like for the victim survivor you know, what is her or his or their conception of what justice looks like in this scenario? And of course, there are survivors for whom they want nothing to do with the perpetrator. They, you know, there, there are survivors that want absolutely nothing to do with the perpetrator. They would rather never see them again, have zero interaction. And that is fair and just and equitable. And who are we, you know, as outsiders to question that? But in instances where people want the abuse to stop, but they don't want the relationship with the person abusing them to end, you know, which is how a lot of abusive relationships are when the abuse is in its infancy or it's in its early stages. You know, so many women in particular will say, you know, when people say, why didn't you just leave? It's like, well, I didn't want to not be with him. I just didn't want the abuse. And so Carly and Keenan are endlessly fascinating because they go down that path. They followed that journey in their relationship and it brought to light many of the things about Keenan that Carly didn't recognize and vice versa. That Carly got an, an understanding of why Keenan behaved the way that he did. And none of it was Carly's fault at all. But there were things in their relationship that triggered, you know, different things, memories, and other things for Keenan that made him behave in a certain way. And he then got support for that. And similarly, Carly got an understanding of herself, you know, and and what it was about her that allowed her to put up with abuse, you know, that that what what was wounded in her that meant that she felt at a time that she wasn't necessarily as deserving of the kind of love that she was and is deserving of. And so for me, it was fascinating to have two people 
who are both so wounded yet so generous with themselves, you know, to, to open up and to share, you know, publicly such like open wounds of trauma. I, you know, those conversations, I, they will stay with me for the rest of my life because it's really shaped just how complicated domestic abuse and family violence is and how we are not ones on the outside to judge what a survivor chooses is appropriate for themselves. Mm. And, yeah, what a privilege, a difficult yeah. privilege for you to sit inside the story, those stories. And um, I'm not sure if it translates to your own healing uh, with with your own family's unique experience of, of losing Nikki. But um, but thank you for, for bringing those stories, as I said earlier, up to audiences who, who can learn from them themselves and understand the patterns, the, the darker patterns of human behaviour that unfortunately we have in our society. I tuned into your launch event of the of the podcast and you said at that that you miss Nikki more than words can say and that in little ways mm. she just stays with you that memory is just showing up in you every day and how will you continue to celebrate Nikki's life yourself it's hard to know how to celebrate her life you know like it, because it's not grand displays of anything you know like we'll get a birthday cake on the 21st of June which is her birthday and on the 9th of January, the anniversary of her death, we go to her memorial at the cemetery. You know, those are the two things that we do without fail. But I tend not to go as often as, as my parents to the, the cemetery because for me, you know, Nikki wasn't the person that she's known as in public. That, you know, a lot of people know her because of how her life was taken from her. I know her as the sister that I had for 23 years. And so for me, celebrating her is about honouring those things. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the same for all victim survivors. I'm always more interested and invested in knowing who those people, primarily women, but who those people were during their life than the circumstances of their death. Because their death wasn't a choice. That, you know, it was someone's decision to take their life from them. And so I celebrate Nikki, you know, by watching back video clips that she produced or by um, getting a, you know, a chocolate birthday cake on the 21st of June every year and cutting a slice and eating it and reflecting on those sorts of things and looking at old photos. And when she died, being 23, she had such big plans. And I, I just, um, I feel really sad for her. You know, like uh, it's, it's our family's loss, but ultimately it's her loss and it's the loss for every victim survivor whose hopes and dreams are taken from them. You know, and she had plans for that year to travel to Europe and those were taken from her. And I just think of, you know, now that I'm in my 30s, I think of, you know, the people and particularly women I know in their, you know, mid, early to mid 20s and them discovering their sense of self and their place in the world and who they want to be. And so I celebrate her by like really connecting with others who are in similar professions and similar fields and, and doing creative things. Cause to me, that's what gave her life. And that's mm-hmm. how I remember her life rather yeah. than the ugly circumstances of her death. Yeah. So yeah, it's chocolate cake and, and creative pursuits. And kindness from what you shared yes. with us early on. Tarang, we like to finish uh, Human Cogs conversations with the same question with all our guests, and it's a simple yet complex question. Who do you think is doing human well? Oh, my mum. Yeah, definitely mum. I think, uh, or Nikki and my mum, I think uh, seeing the way that she has dealt with the grief and the loss of a child, and particularly a mother's loss is profound because they carry the child and, and all of those factors. 
she the, the grace and dignity with which she continues to to human you know to use it as a verb is is just it's not lost on me she could easily have gone the other way and i don't know how she didn't to be honest i don't know how she didn't become jaded and cruel and switched off to the world and yet she is just so open and loving and welcomes people into her life and into her home with open arms and is there for everybody. And I just think that, you know, I don't know if it's something that's got to do with, with my sister and Nikki, but something, yeah, she's, she's, she's doing human well. And I think that the lesson for me is that no matter the adversity anyone goes through, there's always something, there's always a silver lining. There's always something positive to come out of a negative life event or experience. And it feels a bit preachy and I don't like it, but I think that if we hold on to that, we find that whatever it is, you know, for ourselves, then we enrich our own existence, let alone the lives of others. And I think she's, yeah, she's doing human well. It feels like we never got the privilege or the joy of meeting Nikki, but it feels like a lot of the ways you describe your mum and a lot of the ways you show up in the world, Tarang, are also doing human, human well. That's very kind, but she's very annoying. Let's not forget that. No, no, and we know that, and cheers to her annoyance as well. Thank you for joining us on Human Cogs. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us, and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.